research in nature's laboratory never stops it explores every possibility it never lacks funding it is never demoralized by failed experiments it cannot be lobbied wallen klinkenberg welcome to a new episode of the researcher story an exploration into the science labs of india a conversation with some of our best minds where scientists will finally get to be the hero of the show so it's international women's day tomorrow uh, although i'm inclined towards saying that women need to be celebrated every single day uh, so i read a quote a few days ago and it really made a lot of sense to me uh, it goes this way our generation is becoming so busy to prove that women can do what men can do that women are losing their uniqueness women weren't created to do everything a man can do women were created to do everything a man can't do and our guest today is someone who according to me is a complete embodiment of the quote she is an ecologist working with nature studying its beautiful intricacies its complex but invariably easy looking systems i've always wondered why we always associate nature as feminine why do we say mother nature and not father nature let's get an answer to this question from our guest herself please welcome dr meghna krishnadas scientist at center for cellular and molecular biology ccmb to the show welcome dr meghna hi suraj and uh, thank you so much for uh, having me on the show and for that very nice introduction um and on the occasion of international women's day uh, definitely my uh, good wishes go out to all the women out there leading the charge in making sure that uh, we are as much a part of the world um, and the society as uh, anyone else around us and this is probably a call you know as you said uh, i feel like every day should be a day for everybody uh, in celebrating justice and equality because that's what we need um thank you so much for having me and i'm looking forward to our conversation today thank you dr megna so i'm going to put you on the spot here and ask okay. a trivial question okay uh, why do we always associate nature as feminine why do we say mother nature not father nature well <laughs> you have put me on the spot indeed um i don't know if i am the best person to answer such a question because i'm sure that there are uh, those um who have been pondering on this and perhaps some of this even goes back deeper into the um the way our psychology and our mindsets have been shaped uh, right as a society as a collective uh, but if i would to just venture my opinion about it what i would uh, think is that um we have always considered nature in some sense uh, to be uh, to be the giver uh to uh, provide for us and that image is perhaps associated with the mother or with uh, more feminine values and virtues as it were um you know which itself is can be contested um in terms of the um, the roles that we ascribe to men and women or people in our genders in our society uh, but that i would probably hedge my bets on that world view um that it's because we think of nature as the giver as a provider as someone who takes care of us uh, but can also sometimes get angry and uh, you know turn around on us <laughs> yeah i think that's a, that's a beautiful way of putting it uh, and then the, a lot of things uh, you know uh, as far as character or nature is concerned mm-hmm. uh, for a, for a feminine it goes along with what you said right uh, that nature is some something that's always giving and i i i certainly believe that you know uh, a mother is is someone who you look up to as far as being selfless and giving is concerned right mm-hmm. so 
but yeah. i think there is a, a bit of, of a problem even there right like um, we again i i don't think nature is always giving as such i think it's the it's a hope that humankind has we want nature to be giving because that's what works best for us uh, so even if you go back to the oldest gods that we think of they are gods that you know they are forces of nature that we would want to propitiate we want to keep happy because we want them to keep giving us and keeping our lives easy uh so i think anyway that's a whole different conversation that of course my science cannot cannot answer to at all but definitely a uh, an interesting uh discussion to have <laughs> absolutely so let's just shift our focus to you know uh, your story and uh, to begin with uh, something that i found really interesting was you made a gradual shift in your career from mm-hmm. uh, medical studies you did, you did an uh, you did your mbbs Mm-hmm. uh and worked in the public health sector and now you've shifted to conservation biology and wildlife conservation and ecology so right. what was the motivation behind such a shift uh, why did you choose to go down this path right so like you very correctly identified it was kind of gradual and i sort of went meandering around this path rather than realizing um you know that every at every step that okay this is exactly what is coming next uh in some ways it was uh, serendipitous and it was just accidental exposure to something at that particular point of time that shaped my thinking or matched how i was thinking um and i think my earliest um realization that uh, i want to i don't want to do follow the conventional trajectory of doing a medical degree then doing a specialization or a super specialization and becoming the usual uh, you know high flying high profile doctor go into that doctor job was mm-hmm. uh, maybe the second or third year of my medicine where um, i just completely on a whim happened to go to a forest where uh, another friend of mine was working at that time it was in dr hills uh, and he was a uh, he was a medical officer in um, the uh, in an ngo there that was running a hospital for the local communities in that area um and we it was just like an outing with friends very casual we went there spent a few days but what i remember is that i was just so fascinated by the whole feeling of being out there it was invigorating i had never felt like this before never felt so good before and uh that was when i so, you know sort of started bird watching or uh, got into this thing of i trying to see okay what birds are out there i saw my first sambar deer and um, the experience left a deep mark on a deep impression on me and uh, it sort of started there and that's when i started making more forays into uh, look you know going into these uh, areas doing more hikes treks trying to go to national parks and wildlife sanctuaries to just watch animals Uh, and then somewhere in between another friend of mine had uh, she found this opportunity to volunteer with center for wildlife studies um, which um, where they were doing uh, these uh, surveys of uh, animals or animal populations and they required volunteers to help them out with it so uh, we went in for that and uh, i think there's been no turning back since that was the first time i realized that um, you can actually do this from a very science like there is a science of wildlife of nature of ecology whatever you may call it um and yes i slowly just took up from there did a lot of volunteering and at in the meantime i uh, finished my medical studies and worked in public health for about a year year and a half or so 
uh, for two reasons one is because i deeply believed that public health was where a lot of us should be like medical practitioners should be putting their focus into and also because i wanted to be in uh, areas that are away from the city i wanted to be in a forest i was trying to sort of bridge this um uh, skill that i had or whatever the training i would say uh, that i had as a doctor and my deep interest in being in natural areas uh much to the chagrin of my family and many other people i know um but uh, at some point i had to decide okay what next and um so uh, I, to to cut yeah. you off over there yes yes how was that talk uh, with your family when um, you actually decided to to go into that <laughs> in public it, health areas right it wasn't one talk and it wasn't easy um i think it was a bit of a shock to them because they had no idea that such a thing was possible like such a thing as science um leave alone like a career in science leave alone a career in ecology or wildlife is even possible they thought it was extremely risky uh and uh, in india there's also this hierarchy right like medicine is considered the most prestigious uh yeah, work yeah. that you can do or at least until very recently it was considered so uh now i think you should be a banker or a mba <laughs> i don't know what what is the current fad <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> but uh, anyhow so it was sort of you know considered a step down and a lot of my family members i don't think understood it at at all like what my motivation was to do this um and uh I got a lot of advice about how I'm doing the wrong thing and what I should be doing instead the commonest being you can use the follow this as a hobby or you can you know just do some writing on this by the side or you do photography uh, and with all due respect it was completely irrelevant advice um <laughs> but uh, yeah I I just um, I'm stubborn so I persisted and I was lucky that at that time uh, there was a new course that was starting at NCBS um, which was the master's program in wildlife biology um i at some point i decided to apply i got in and sort of you know continued down that path yeah i mean uh, what's interesting is the thing that a uh, lot of us you know go on treks right uh, these days mm-hmm. it, it it's like a it's like a fad i would say that right you have your holidays you go to the jungle you have you hang out and you know mm-hmm. refresh yourself is what 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 right. they Right. but uh, to actually take a step forward uh, mm-hmm. and say that this is what i'm going to do throughout my life that mm-hmm. takes some doing uh, and that's that's something that's 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 actually probably come out some somewhere somewhere within y- your own self right. where where you you you've told yourself that yes this is what this is what you're meant to do in your life hmm yeah sometimes i feel it is more about uh, thinking of what i'm not meant to do when i was doing my medical degree um i think i kind of realized that i was not meant to um or i i did not really get so kicked by the conventional job of being a doctor even though it was considered so prestigious considered to be the best thing out there it's like you know you have all of these social this huge social uh capital when you are a when you are a medical doctor uh so partly it was that realization although i think it took me quite some time to really even reconcile myself to that realization or articulate it or have the uh, um, the strength to say it out to my family members um and uh, yeah it was partly that but uh, yes i think like i said it was a lot of lucky things coming together right like my the fact that i got an exposure or an opportunity to be a volunteer the fact that i could um 
get this opportunity with different organizations, get exposed to different ways people work with wildlife science. And of course, I did do my own reading and follow up on my own uh, regard. And the the very lucky opportunity of having that NCBS program, uh, which was at that time a, a WCS India and NCBS joint program in wildlife biology and conservation. Um, and uh, the timing was just perfect for me in some sense, because uh, unfortunately, our academic system in India is quite inflexible. And in so many ways, I'm experiencing that even now. Um, mm. And when I had applied to other programs, wildlife biology master's programs, um, I was turned down because I didn't have a bachelor's degree in a relevant field. So basically medicine didn't count, which I thought was absurd. I mean, you interview me and you realize whether or not I'm up to the mark and then you take on. And I think that was the biggest, uh, uh, you know, the the best thing about the NCBS program that uh, it was not based on. You could have any background. Uh, it didn't matter as so long as you could crack the exam and their interview and they decided that, yes, you had potential to do this field. So, you know, it was a lot of lucky things also. But yes, somewhere I did have to take that decision uh, in life saying that this may or may not work out. It may be a risk. I'm going to leave behind six years of medical training to I don't know do what exactly. Um, and a lot of money as well. And a lot of money, probably. I don't. <laughs> yes, a lot of I, I, people do tell me that. Um, but uh, but yes, I, I think I was just maybe because just the fire of youth or whatever. But I had I felt so passionately about this, and I think it was just that passion which sort of drove me and said that I don't care what the consequences are. I need to give this a shot. And if I fail, so be it. But it's you know at least I would have tried. Yeah, I want to stick to the point of research in uh, in nature, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you further went to uh, Yale for, for your mm -hmm. PhD. Yes. Uh, and somewhere I do feel that, you know, that kind of gave you good exposure about how research can be done in, 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 in nature and ecology. Can, mm -hmm. can you tell us a bit about how uh, that experience? Right. So to be fair, I think my exposure to good science started even during the master's program. Um, and uh, I owe a lot to this program and to the people who teach uh, us in that program. Uh, I'm proud to be an alumnus of the um, of my life program at NCPS. Um, so it was that program and the training that I got there, which really allowed me to, uh, you know, then look forward or delve deeper into the kind of science I want to do. Uh, the experience at Yale was great, no doubt. Um, I think the biggest advantage was that, um, you know, I sort of got out of the bubble that was in India and saw science happening at a much larger global stage. So the kind of learning I got, both in terms of its breadth and its depth, was much wider perhaps than what I would have got at that time in India had I been doing a PhD in India. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, um, yeah, it, it did definitely equip me. My training at Yale, um, particularly with my advisor, Dr. Liza Komita, who was fantastic and we still enjoy a great relationship. Uh, she, you know, being there really equipped me to think of science as a global endeavor to get this much wider picture of where you are with your work uh, and situate in a much broader context. Yeah, and somewhere uh... Research is also an art, right? I I, I do feel that, that absolutely. Because, uh, there's there's a lot of uh, process by which you need to reach that particular outcome. You need to design the experiments in a particular way, right? So right. you know that is something that you get to learn when you're doing probably a PhD for a six-year period and all, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, Suraj, just just before we started the podcast, like we were discussing, I think um, uh, research, yes, it is an art and one that you need to learn in that so many skills that, I, that you need to learn while you're going to do research. Uh, you need to be patient. You need to learn how to accept failure. You need to realize, first of all, that you have to be comfortable with uncertainty, with not knowing and maybe realizing that you may never know something. Uh, completely (laughs) so um, but uh, yes in terms of the very nitty gritties like the philosophical aspects of it apart uh, the nitty gritties of just doing science how do you ask a good question how do you synthesize all of the knowledge that is already out there sift the good from the bad information understand what how to judge what is reliable information and use that to build on you know, build on that body of knowledge, ask a new question and add to that larger body of knowledge. How do you do all of this? That is the key part of doing science. And I think that is what, um, in my experience, at least that's what most students at least struggle with in the first uh, initial parts of doing a PhD or doing science. Um, It's not just about some tools and techniques we use. It's not just about the end products. It's a lot about the process of generating knowledge. What is the philosophy of that process? Exactly. I think and that's where a lot of people uh, fail as well. Uh, you know, we, we think yeah. that, you know, we are doing a lot of work. We are struggling for six years, 10 years, 15 years. But there is an art to it. There is a process to it. And that's right. what needs to be learned. Right. right. Yeah. 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 And yeah. we cannot separate the philosophy of doing science from doing science. And, you know, you can talk about or rather one can talk about the philosophy and debate on how it should be and the various forms of thinking. Um, and, you know, but there is, we do need to think deeply about this science as an art form, like you very truly said. Exactly. So now coming to probably the the next phase of your life, you, you've had a lot of passion, you've equipped yourself with the, with the tools required to do research. Now you're back to India mm-hmm. uh, and you're continuing with your research. You mm-hmm. are setting up your own research program at the uh, Laboratory for Conservation of Endangered Species. At, okay. CMB. Yes. Uh, and you're calling it the cafe lab. Can yes. you tell us a bit more about it? It, it really seems interesting. Well, uh, yeah, it's a, I, I would say again, one of those fortunate things. It's a good acronym that just came out when I was thinking of, um, okay, what, what are the key aspects of my work, uh, both current and future that I would like to highlight uh, as a lab? So, um, yeah, so my policy always has been that uh, a lab should reflect or the name of the lab should reflect what happens in the lab and should not be tied to the name of the PI. Uh, So that was the first basis on which I said, okay, this is not going to be called just something as bland as Krishnadas lab. Um, And uh, so in just thinking of what I do, I I am a community ecologist. So I study how uh, collections of species form an ecological community. What are the processes that... uh, allow species to either become abundant or be rare, what allows rare species to persist. And the one angle through which I study this is based on species uh, characteristics itself, what we as ecologists call traits. Uh, So, for example, in humans, eye color would be a trait or skin color would be a trait where uh, pale skin helps you, you know, has evolved because it helps you deal better Uh, with the low sunlight conditions of temperate areas, whereas a darker skin with more melanin actually helps you deal better with the high sunlight irradiance that is found in tropical areas. So similar to that, plants also and organisms, many different organisms evolve different traits. So I study the 
the performance of organisms and how they interact with each other based on their uh, traits that determine their function. So then I thought, okay, so largely I'm looking at communities and I'm looking at function and the ecology of these things. So why not call this a community and functional ecology lab? And that just sort of very nicely fell together into cafe. Um, and uh, I like that because I think cafe sort of gives this idea of a more casual uh, environment. And that's what, that's how I want it. Like, uh, you know, we I want my lab to be a place where people just come and discuss things and uh, throw ideas around and... Uh, just talk science in general. Absolutely, and uh, I'm sure there won't be coffee over there. But, uh, <laughs> we love coffee also. <laughs> Acknowledging that it causes certain ecological problems. <laughs> but inside a lab, probably you can avoid having coffee. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's it's actually a good idea because you know uh, we. I mean, I have been in the labs, and uh-huh. we generally associate labs to be like. A place where either you are in a lab coat and you're all you know in the mm-hmm. serious mode doing your experiments full day right. Right. probably thinking of 10 other things as well right. and uh, <laughs> and having and having had failures for the last two months or so you're you're like cribbling about all those things all uh-huh. the while so uh-huh. uh, as far as an atmosphere is concerned you know you need a good uh, happy place where ideas can come in right mm-hmm. so right. it really makes a lot of sense what what uh, the way the way you're looking at uh, how uh, your your lab would be and I think this this would really excite a lot of a lot of youngsters who are looking forward to, you know, working in this field as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope so. <laughs> so. Yeah. So what what are the kind of uh, uh, you know projects that you are hoping to take up uh, in in your lab? Right. Um, so well, broadly, like the title itself says, I uh, work on projects or questions related to the organization of ecological communities. That is how different groups, like different species, interact with one another, form a group. Why this group or the features of this community vary from site to site. Um, but uh, there are, um, and you know, one thing is that what the way I see my research or what I want to do. Uh, is sort of distinct from what my students may want to do. While we might work in the broad realm of community ecology, my students always have the freedom to think of their own questions and take it forward as they want. So I'll just tell you in terms of what I see my research is going and there might be other things that happen because students want to do something different uh, or take it in their direction. Um, But uh, uh, two broad things. One is I am very much interested in the fundamental mechanisms of nature that maintain what we think of as diversity. Uh, And diversity means why are there so many species? Why isn't one or two species like pushing everything else out? Uh, What allows rare species to persist and hence maintain a diverse ecosystem? So I want to continue examining some of those mechanisms or processes, ecological processes that allow diversity to be maintained in the communities, ecological communities. And perhaps as as an extension of that, uh, we live in a human dominated planet today, right? And human activities have changed the face of the earth and changed ecosystems in massive ways. So I want to understand how communities or ecosystems will respond to human impacts by using some of the basic fundamental understanding of what shapes ecological communities. So my argument is if we need to understand the basic ecology of how a community 
is structured, how it comes to be, and use that to predict or project how such a community might respond to human impacts, such as when you have uh, climate change, for example, if rainfall patterns change, what species are likely to do better in that situation, what species might be hit. Or if you break up an ecosystem into smaller parts, which is what I, you know, I have studied this quite a bit. It's called habitat fragmentation. Why do some species do better, but other species don't uh, manage to cope up? And what does that mean for the com ecological community as a whole? Okay. So uh, how does the research happen, uh, you know, to come to this, these outcomes? Ah, okay. So, you know, you just mentioned lab coats and uh, these uh, uh, serious environments. Um, so the reason why we can still drink a cup of coffee in the lab is because our lab is the forest or the natural ecosystem out there. Okay. So, you know, so it's perfectly fine to drink a cup of coffee there. You're not going to do much damage. Uh, but uh, a lot of the research that we do um, is field-based research. Uh, at least what I've done so far has been completely, the data is collected completely in the field. And by the field, I mean like, uh, you know, we go to a forest or a grassland or there are people who study marine systems. My work has focused on tropical wet forests, uh, which is like, you know, in common parlance, you would call that a rainforest. Um, mm -hmm. So um, I, I design a study um, or design my data collection with that in mind that, okay, I have to go out there and I need to understand the system that I'm working in, design a study accordingly uh, to answer the question that I have asked. Then we spend sometimes, you know, months at a stretch or maybe even, you know, a couple of years at a stretch um, collecting that data in the forest or the, uh, you know, or the grassland or wherever we happen to be asking this question. Um, and uh, yeah, the data collection is like any other data collection. You know, you go out every day from Usually there's like six to eight hour days, sometimes maybe more uh, setting up experiments in the field or just collecting observational data at times. We use a mix of experiment and observation in our ecological work. Uh, then you come back after you have the data and uh, there is of course the job of collating and uh, organizing the data, but we rely a lot on statistical tools, you know, pretty hardcore statistics to answer some of the questions that we have asked. Uh, so that's kind of the okay. overall process of what we do. And uh, so as far as the, the, uh, the skills that you're looking out for as when, mm -hmm. you, when, you, uh, when you're probably recruiting students, mm -hmm. uh, are, what, are, what are the major skills that you're looking at? Mm, that's, a, that's a great question. So uh, I think in general, if you want to do ecological science, then the first skill set probably is that you need to be passionate about being out in the wild, uh, you know, or to, yeah. to know more about how nature works. And uh, while that, that may not necessarily be a skill set, but I think that is something that you need to recognize uh, very honestly about yourself. And the an important associated skill set is the ability to work in pretty hard fee harsh field conditions. You may not have access to internet. You may not have access to your phone. You won't, you'll be away from your friends and family and your usual comfortable city-based life. You'll be in a rural area, sometimes in very, very uh, basic, with very basic necessities. And you should be able to withstand all of that uh, when you're doing your data collection and actually enjoy your time. Uh, so that's definitely something that I'm looking for in people. <laughs> the second uh, skill is uh, if you want to do a PhD, um, critical thinking. 
you know can you uh, how comfortable are you with being challenged in your ideas how comfortable are you uh, or how well are you able to look at this literature and sort of figure out what is going on in the world around you um a third skill set uh, is uh, some degree of comfort with statistics because we are going to need a lot of statistics or ecology uses a lot of stats mm-hmm. and another one is writing you know as a okay. science communicator i'm sure you appreciate this that uh, we need to have the ability to say clearly what we are thinking so one part of science of course is to you know develop the ability to think clearly but then also equally important perhaps more so is the ability to convey it clearly either in words or in writing so uh, communication skills is also something that i am looking for as a baseline and all of these skills is something that i emphasize uh, working on or developing as you're doing your phd particularly in my lab absolutely so this is something for all uh, our viewers who will be listening to the podcast if you have those skills please to uh, contact dr megna on this uh, anyways on the on the point of uh, science communication mm-hmm. uh, how's your experience been as far as science communication in india is concerned hmm uh, well <laughs> i think on looking at the positive side science communication is growing fast and expanding rapidly in india um i don't know if you think the same being smack in the middle of that field um but do, that's yeah. the impression i get and i think that's a great thing um i think we definitely need an army of science communicators out there um those who are uh, and much more regular interaction between scientists and the communicators uh so it's right. good that that is happening and i hope more such things happen um, <coughs> um i think there are a lot of very dedicated passionate and very talented people out there doing science communication now and uh, including some friends of my mine um so i see great potential for that field um i personally think that science communication is as much or as important a part of the science perhaps more uh, than the science itself sometimes like doing the science itself um and that as uh, people who use public funds other either public or private funds or whatever but we use other people's money to do our work to generate the knowledge and i think that having that knowledge out there for everybody whoever might want it or whoever might be interested in it is extremely critical uh and in that regard like our publication like the science publishing system is wanting in many ways you know with papers behind a paywall and what not and also the fact that so much of our studies are in technical jargon so um i think that it behooves all of us to do some amount of science communication either do it yourself if you are comfortable with it or interact with other science communicators out there Uh, to make sure that this knowledge is disseminated widely and especially to uh, you know students in schools and colleges and give them an idea of how we are looking at the world what we know what does science doing science mean what is the state of the art of the knowledge so i think it's a responsibility for all of us to do science communication it the nail on the head because uh you know the, my experience uh, like I, i i told you before before i started the call mm-hmm. you know uh, be, because there was a lot of uh, gap in science communication 
lot of my colleagues couldn't really you know uh, continue in the field because, mm. because they couldn't uh, they couldn't understand about uh, the kind of opportunities that existed so you know going to schools and explaining science communicating science is is probably the need of the r as well um, because as a country we we are growing out of you know uh, the past and putting putting a, a, a strong step into the, in, into the future as well right mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. if you actually look at uh, uh, you know past decade or so a lot of new things are happening in india as well True. and as far as research is concerned uh, you know in in, in various fields uh, even even biotechnology has grown out of the shell uh mm-hmm. we always used to talk about you know funnily about the scope of biotechnology even when we were in mm-hmm. our college days but uh, it's actually coming out now that there's a lot of new opportunities mm-hmm. coming up our companies have realized the potential okay. uh you know and in these days where you 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 seen how proper science can mm-hmm. help in uh, you know curing a lot of uh, issues as well i mean just take right. the example of the vax vaccines right mm-hmm. uh, i don't i don't think uh 80% of of the population would have ever even known about something known as a vaccine but now right. it's the talk of the town so right. and and luckily our, our country is supplying like 60% of the world's vaccines so right. so now we we have an upper hand if, if you really look at it in in that aspect uh, mm. we have the brains right uh, yeah. yeah like the so human it, resource Definitely. it is there it's oh. there it's there so yeah. it just needs to be explored and uh, i think we are all on the cusp of it and communicating it to the right amount of people mm. is something that will that will really take us to the next level right i totally agree with you and um, i think india has huge potential in terms of the science that we can do uh, and science communication will play a major role in uh, both generating interest and passion for those opportunities and just exposing students uh, to the possibilities out there but uh, one thing that i would say is that or what i hope for is that often science in india in our schools is often you know seen as a very technology driven thing uh, again perhaps related to something that we spoke over there has to be this discernible end goal in terms of a benefit a product and uh, yeah. you know an output in terms of something usable and while that is most certainly uh, a part of science it's not what science is about so sometimes i feel science doing science communication about all kinds of sciences also to make people aware of the the nature of science as a whole uh, where does basic science fit into this larger scheme of things which leads to application or use or um, you know uh, uh, a technology output or whatever it might be in ecology for example even now i see there a huge you know bridge between people who are doing basic ecology are it is sometimes thought that oh you're just doing these blue sky questions or none of this matters we have problems and these problems need to be solved and here is what the the only science that is needed is science that is geared towards solving problems but um, i feel that a, a part of science communication is also to put this bigger picture out there saying that yes we have problems and we do need the information uh, and the science geared towards solving those problems but where is that baseline information coming from you need basic sciences to form that you know to have provide that platform of knowledge in the first place um so i feel that science doing science communication also allows us to put that bigger picture out there makes sense uh, i think uh... in fact uh, this is something which uh, i was uh, talking to uh, to our our uh, previous uh, guest on the show mm-hmm. uh, dr anant lakshmi 
So she is into uh, basic research uh, at uh, RGCB through uh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and uh, she she was also mentioning the same point that you know something like a vaccine uh, wasn't built uh, wasn't developed in a year's time. It has mm-hmm. it, it's been like fifty years in the research right. that now you can build it in 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 a year's time. So uh, right. if if those fifty years of basic research wouldn't have wouldn't have happened if people wouldn't have uh, you know started. Need our virus. We wouldn't have had the opportunity to, you know, make a vaccine within a year. So uh, definitely, I mean that that is something that, that it, it's more about. I think the thought process that that you say, right? Yeah. Uh, that shift in the thought process where it's not only about uh, outcome. It's mm-hmm. also a lot about small steps and the process that you reach there. So yeah, uh, yeah. I mean at. A, a SpaceX is not built like in a in a day's time. Uh, you don't get so much of funding for <laughs> SpaceX just just because you know in the first attempt itself you will get people to Mars. So that's not going to happen. Right. It's a small, it's a step by step, step by step process. And unless you put that effort to that, you're never going to reach the outcome. Yeah, um, and and science is a is an incremental process. And I think this comes back to or brings us back to what we were discussing earlier on in during um, this our talk, which is. Uh, that uh, one thing science is slow science is about very small steps and sometimes you know you are at a point where there have been enough of these small steps where you can take a giant leap forward but until then you have to support what those small steps are and there can be a discussion on you know who gets funding or what what is important what is not and all of that but without the the platform of basic sciences of science as a whole uh, we are not going to just be able to produce technology as such. So I think that's a key thing to remember. And especially in ecology, you know, like you mentioned about the vaccine, the 50 years of basic science knowledge that preceded the application that we have today. Uh, ecology is sort of at this point where we are trying to understand all of these complex systems, how they work. And maybe, you know, now is the point or in the very near future, we're going to have a point where all of this knowledge is in some sense going to be useful or would probably have to be applied to better manage or preserve these ecosystems also. It's not just about monitoring uh, things. It's also about understanding it to predict changes and uh, preempt what kind of changes might happen, uh, considering the the pace at which we are changing the world today. Absolutely. I, I do agree on 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 that, uh, and you know, we we all know how how climate change is affecting uh, the the world, right? Uh, human activities are affecting the world. So, if not now, in the near future, there will be a time for action. Mm-hmm. And when that time comes, all this information, data, and basic research that we've done, that's going to come in handy. Right. There's no doubt about it. Right. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I completely respect uh, the fact that there are some problems that need immediate, urgent attention and which, which we need to prioritize sometimes maybe at the cost of basic science. But all I'm saying is that I think we need a space for uh, everything. We need a much wider space to think and understand how the world around us works. Absolutely. And we have the brains, right? We, we see every every year, uh, you know, students going out of India and mm-hmm. doing basic science itself. Uh, right. I had a lot of my friends going right. out and doing their MS, their PhD. So the interest right. is there, right? People want to do that. Yeah. So, so it's just the platforms that's that that we need to create so that yeah. you know same people can stay in the, in the country 
and uh, do that but that that kind of basically absolutely and i think you know we really should be very optimistic about the future that if uh, with say um i think there are so many people at least i know i can speak confidently of ecology people who are going out to do their phd or their you know postdocs and they're coming back to india and they're you know building their labs in in india and contributing to developing the field of ecology wildlife biology and conservation here in india bringing in a diversity of thought diversity of expertise uh studying on a huge variety of systems and i think those are all good trends for the future uh you know they they all portend well for the future uh so i'm at least for ecology and uh, you know wildlife sciences i think there is uh, we can certainly look forward to much uh, to a lot of exciting stuff in the future uh hoping that the you know the powers that we also realize that the funding for this there is adequate support or a funding structure for uh, sciences no doubt uh, on that note uh, uh, before we end the call uh, i would like to uh, know uh, from you as to what your message would be to all the budding researchers in our country wow <laughs> uh that's quite a responsibility so <laughs> and i mean uh, you can um, uh, you are in a position to to you know uh right. yeah i i would say that um don't give up think of the long game uh, you know believe in yourself and uh believe that what you do is worth it um and the end products will come and think big think wide think broad don't limit yourself in terms of possibilities that is a very very strong and uh, appropriate message i would say to uh, conclude the call it's been it's been great it's been amazing to have this conversation with you dr megna uh, and i hope that uh, i'll get a chance to of course have a cup of coffee with you at the <laughs> cafe lab and uh, yes. yeah <laughs> and of course a lot lot of uh, good research happens in your lab and and uh, you have an amazing amazing time in uh, in your in your laboratory uh, thank yes, you well. for your time yes suraj and thank you so much again for having me i have also enjoyed our conversation very much uh, and it's been great to chat with you thanks a lot have a good day bye bye you as well yeah bye bye